Welcome. Here at The Bridge Church, we exist to help you connect to God, grow with family, and serve our city. We hope today's message will allow you to grow deeper in your connection to God. Enjoy the message. Jesus, we come in this room to worship your very name. And we've come into this place this afternoon to be able to move closer to you, God. We sing songs so that we can experience you more. And we uplift your name more. We uplift your character more. But God, we confess that tonight so many of us are at different places with you, God. We're all experiencing you in different ways. And as we walk up here and open up the very words of God, there is no way we can sufficiently explain you. What we must have tonight is an encounter with the living God. And this goes beyond words. And just like on the Emmaus Road, the disciples were walking and were not clear of who they were speaking with. But they said, did not our hearts burn when they unveiled the scriptures? And tonight, would you burn our hearts again? Would you open us up again to who you are and change us, God, and make us look more like you, God? And for the proud, make us more, uh, more like you and bring us less into ourselves. And for the broken, God, build us up. But let us see you tonight. Let us see you tonight for who you are. And we pray, God, we walk away from this place and we would be enchanted with you, God. We'd be fixated on you, God. And we'd fix our minds on the author and finisher of our faith. Now, God, we pray your spirit do your work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good to see everybody here. Um, we will probably have some seating issues uh, as time goes on, so uh, just be aware that we have seats right here and right here up front, and if you're able to, please try to move in as much as possible just to make yourself uh, available for other people to be able to come in. Well, as we begin this series, uh, some of you know that we're beginning a series in the book of Revelation. It's interesting Every time I mention that to people, they actually literally like jump in their seat and get scared. And it's amazing because you'd think we were just going to sit here and watch uh, an episode of Stranger Things or something, or we were going to read a Stephen King book. And the sad reality of that is that people are actually afraid to read a book of the Bible. Think about that. Because we're afraid of all the different imagery there. And if you were to open up your Bible to Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, here is what this Bible, this is what these words tell us. It says, in the very first part of the text, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is not about just beasts and looking at stars and judgments. This is a revelation of Jesus. 
And Jesus, just like Jay-Z would say, allow me to reintroduce myself. (laughs) Jesus is reintroducing himself, but not as the servant alone, and not as the savior alone, but as the risen king. And we see Jesus no longer just like the lamb, but now more like a lion, a risen king. In the first few chapters of this book, you'll see Jesus judging churches, speaking into the reality of the church. And then in the last part of the book, we're going to see Jesus as king. And so we're going to see both sides of Jesus. Now, the word revelation literally means to unveil, to see something that was not there before. And Jesus is allowing us to peer into who he is. Look here in Revelation 1. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, whatever he saw. Next verse. Blessed, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what it is written, and because the time is near. The Bible is saying by the reading of these words, your life is blessed because you are encountering a different side of Jesus that is not publicized. It is the risen one. Now, here we have to understand that Jesus, who died, rose again, and is seated at the right hand of the Father, In the book of Acts, we see Jesus ascending into the sky. But this is a picture of what Jesus would be like now, seated at the right hand of the Father. And he is in a vision. God gives a vision to a man named John. John has been exiled on this island of Patmos. Patmos has a Roman a colony on it there to imprison people. And at this time, there was a dark, dark persecution happening amongst believers. Domitian was the emperor at the time, and he was killing Christians. By the very mention of saying Jesus' name, they would be tortured and killed. And so it will bring some uh, flavor to what he says in verse 4. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches of Asia, grace and peace from the one who is, who was, and who is to come. From the seven spirits before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Understand there are two aspects Jesus is wanting to make sure people understand about him. He is saying first in verse 5, he says the faithful witness, and this is John speaking about Jesus. He says he's the firstborn from the dead and ruler of the kings of the earth. The word firstborn, proctokos, it's the word that we get when we're trying to give this imagery of someone that's firstborn in a family, but it's actually a rank. And so the firstborn from the dead is giving this idea of the leader of those who will be resurrected and live again. 
But then he also says that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. So notice he doesn't say, I am a king amongst the kings. He doesn't even say, I'm the king of kings. He says, I'm the ruler of the kings. So here he is saying that I am the, the word is like chief magistrate, ruler of rulers. He's basically saying Domitian, the one that is intimidating you. It, people have to answer to him, but Domitian will have to answer to me. I am the ruler of the kings. Now, the reason why this is so important, it is so important, is because persecution, the way we use the term persecution today, is that when you admit you're a Christian, people uh, talk about you, back away from you, and make you look silly. Persecution in our day is embarrassment. Persecution at this time is death. Understand, Domitian wanted one thing. He would say, all people of Rome must worship Caesar. And the words and the phrasing would be Kaiser Curios. Kaiser Curios. And he would have his people go into homes. Kaiser Curios. Kaiser Curios. Is Caesar Lord? And the people that were believers would say, Christos Curios. Christ is Lord. But it wasn't that they were just witnessing. The word witness in Greek means martyr. To admit that Christos was curious, to admit that Christ was Lord, meant several things. They would take four horses. They would put a rope on one arm and tie it to one horse, put a rope on one arm, other arm, tie it to one horse, put a rope on one leg, tie it to one horse, put a rope on the other leg, tie it to a horse, and then they'd whip the horses, ripping your entire body apart. They would drill holes into the heads of the people and put molten lead into their heads. They would impale them on stakes while still alive. And if they were being merciful, they would throw you to the lions because that was quicker. This was the context of their time. And this was the consequences of saying Christos Curios. And what they wanted to know is, will you still say Christos or will you say Kaiser? And so understand, when he writes here, I am the ruler of the kings. He is telling them, do not be intimidated to say Christos. Keep saying Kaiser because I truly am the one in control. And then they may get intimidated one day because they're dying. And he says, no, look at the other part. I'm the firstborn of the dead. If you do die, you will see me. You will rise again and you will be with me whether or not still keep saying Christos. Curious, because Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And so there you have a ruler intimidating people, trying to get them to do whatever he would say do. I know it is hard for us to imagine a leader of a country trying to intimidate a minority group into doing whatever he says to do. 
I know that is a mental leap we have to make. But the reality is that there was no where to protest because the government is evil. There was no one to look to because the very leader is wanting your death. Who were they to look to? And where was their hope? And where are we today in our country when so many of us lack hope? Where elections devastate us? Where another video intimidates us and frustrates us? And we, we want community policing or we want videos and we want justice in our country and in our culture and in our community. And we long for hope. Ta-Nehisi Coates in his book, Between the World and Me, he talks about his friend, Prince Jones. And he mentions in this book that Prince believed in Jesus Christ. And Prince one day in Maryland, in, in Prince George's County actually, driving along, gets pulled over. After he gets pulled over, he is assumed to be a criminal, even though this dude has a master's degree. Gets pulled over, and eventually this cop, who was a plain-clothed cop, would end up killing Prince Jones. Ta-Nehisi Coates, in his book, essentially says this is why he struggles to have hope because the cop kept his job. He struggles to have hope because he continues to see manipulative, evil people in the government. And it's hard for him to see his community changing when the country won't change, when the judges won't change, when the leaders won't change. And I understand his perspective. And this is the place we will all be if our hope is in this world or if our hope is in the next electorate or if our hope is in some new hero of our communities. But here, what Jesus is trying to do is reveal himself in the afterlife so that you would not put all your hope in this world, but that you would see him for who he is, the glorified Savior. Jesus, in his own way, in chapter 1, verse 8, begins to speak. And if you look in verse 7, we're going to skip over that because we're going to talk about Jesus coming back. But if you were to look in verse 8, we see Jesus. And Jesus begins to speak for himself. John is writing. Jesus is revealing himself. And Jesus says to John, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, um, understand this. There are 24 letters in the Greek alphabet. Alpha being the beginning letter. Omega being the last letter. During that time, a rabbi, if he wanted to say something was understood from beginning to end, they would use the phrase alpha and the omega. 
they would say that man is wise. He knows the alpha and the omega. So it meant the whole of a thing. And so Jesus does not say he understands the alpha. He says, I am the alpha. And he says, I am the omega. In saying this, Jesus was speaking to a reality of this world. What he was saying is the world is understood in sequential steps, in scenes. And he says there's an alpha, there's a beta, there's a gamma, there's a delta. I, I had to know the Greek alphabet for my fraternity, so I actually know it. So don't trip when I say the whole thing. But when he, when he says it, he's saying there is an alpha, a beta, a gamma, a delta, a epsilon, a zeta, a eta, theta, alpha, kappa, lambda, mu, nu, xi, omicron, pyro, sigma, tau, epsilon, <laughs> phi, chi, say, omega. But he had to know the whole thing. He had to know the whole thing, right? Uh, alpha, beta, gamma, right? So what he is saying is the world is beta. Life is gamma. Those are the secondary steps. So he is saying, I am the first cause's cause. I am behind everything. And so if you think the world is alpha, you will praise what is in the world. But if you know that Jesus is the alpha, then you will give him all the credit he is due. Think about how awkward and odd that would be to praise not the first cause, but to praise the second cause. You know, the other day, um, LeBron James scored 30,000 points, you know, and, and it was amazing. He, 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 uh, he, he scored his 30,000th point, right? What he did was he shot the ball, and when the ball went in the basket, people naturally went to him because he was the beginning of the movement in that ball, and when it went in the basket, people naturally went back to him. But when you don't praise the alpha, but you praise the beta, it would be like shooting the ball, taking the ball, and be like, good job. Look at you going all in the basket. That's how crazy it would be to praise what's secondary to what goes first. So we have to be careful. If Jesus is alpha, then even my parents, where I grew up, that's all beta and gamma and delta and epsilon. Those all are secondary. If Jesus is alpha, then I shouldn't be intimidated about the future. or I shouldn't be intimidated because if he is alpha, if he is truly alpha, if like LeBron James, he, he knows exactly what to do to get it inside that basket, then I don't need to be worried or I need to be afraid because he set, if he is alpha, he set this world up for himself. So I don't need to be intimidated. And I need to be careful about who I give my full praise to. He is alpha. But Jesus does not end there. Jesus says, I am alpha and I am omega. And when Jesus says he is the omega, that means, as I said, phi, chi, psi, omega, that means that death is not the end. He is saying in this imagery that you may get older and life is wearing down and that's going to happen to us all. Or your life may end sooner than you think. And this very season of your life may be your chi or your psi. It may be the moment where you're closer to death than you think. This past week, uh, actually about a month ago, uh, I found a 
uh, a lump on the back of my head. And um, it had been there for several months. And I remember I touched the back of my head and I could just feel this, this lump. And a friend of mine's wife had died a month before and they found a lump on her head. And so I, I thought to myself, I said, you know, this might be just a little, I actually don't know how I lied to myself, but I just kind of like excused myself from not going to the doctor. So months later, I felt it grow. And so I, I, went, I went to the doctor. Um, th- not every nurse is a good. And, um, <laughs> and I know that this young lady meant well. I, I'm not exactly sure what she was thinking, but she asked me, is cancer in the history of my family? And so I said, yes. I said, my, my uh, grandfather died of prostate cancer. And I said, my mother had, um, had breast cancer. And she said, oh, so it's just working its way down. I was like, oh. I had not been diagnosed. I, I was like, <laughs> listen, yeah, so I didn't. I, I, I was like, I th- so I think she was trying to be helpful in her own way, but don't get lost in that. Um, so there's this moment, there's this moment where she goes out and the doctor comes in. And that moment was about 80 seconds. Oh, but it felt like an hour. Because there I was. You see, the only thing I was thinking about was buildings, and I was thinking about my kids that day. My day was very normal. And within a few seconds, my day and my life, to my knowledge, was changing. And I just peered in, and I said, Lord. And now remember, I also have the backdrop of my friend dying. And uh, I said, Lord, you know, if this is my time, if this is my time, as much as I'll miss Faith, Leah, Sophia, and Natasha, and I will miss my church, I struggle to leave. But there's a part of me anticipates seeing you. And I, I, I say this not as someone who's gone through cancer, or, but for my little window of time where I was under the assumption it was my end. I was not afraid. There's something powerful when you look in the face of your worst moments. Now, that was for me. I have been in the hospital room with people trusting in Jesus, about to be on their last breath. And there is a difference when you trust in this life or when you're trusting in Christ. Is Do you know he is the Omega? If the end is a person. We went to see Paddington 2 yesterday. (laughs) Fascinating movie. I did get a little emotional, but I decided not to cry at an animated bear. But do you know those movies where the scenes end? And then they've got that little video at the end. Like they have like a little, there's like a little surprise video at the end. And you wait for it, you wait for it. But then you see the people walking away. You're like, you're going to miss it. 
you gonna, you gonna miss it. Because you know if you wait at the end, even when it says the end, there's still a person there. And the reason why so many people are intimidated by this world is because they don't know there's a person at the end. It's not just a place. See, see, many people are, they think so deeply about being in heaven. But if you don't want Jesus now, you won't want him later. Heaven is about Jesus. That's why he doesn't say heaven is the omega. He says, I'm the omega. The end is me. The end is a person. The beginning was a person. The end is a person. If you don't want that person, then you don't want the out. You, you are more interested in the letters in the middle. But you don't want the beginning and the end. Heaven is about Jesus. And so this omega, this alpha and the omega, we see descriptors of him. It's amazing um, that, do you know, throughout all the Gospels, there's not one true description of Jesus? Even in Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, 2, it says he was not impressive in form. He was not majestic. (laughs) Isaiah 53, 2 basically says that this wasn't a, a, a guy you would even stare twice at, but not the risen Savior. The risen Savior, the glorified King. Here, oh, John is, he is enthralled by the sheer mention of who Jesus is. He says in verse 14, He says, Jesus, as he looks at him, he says, the hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it it was fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had the seven stars in his right hand, a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. Let him reintroduce himself. This is not the one where they make little hippie pictures of. This is the glorified Savior. And later on, in verse 17, John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He was blown away by the very image of Jesus. Now, let me just give you a little, let's go a little classroom here. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, and it is appointed for people to die once, and after this, the judgment. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Here, all the imagery you're seeing here of Jesus is one of a judge and king. If you were to look in the early part, it shows him amongst lampstands. It shows that he has a sash on. But there are some real points of wisdom when it talks about his eyes being like fire. That is like the fiery eyes of judgment, looking deep into your soul. His hair being like white like wool, showing off the wisdom of the Lord. His face shining like the sun, showing off his glory. His voice like cascading water, showing off his strength. 
And then sharp, double-edged swords coming from his mouth. And it is speaking of the judgment within his character. Jesus is not only servant, not only savior, but he is a judge. And he will judge the non-believer. And he will also judge the believer. And the judgment of the believer, when you die, in Hebrews 9, it says that you're appointed, we die and you're appointed to die once, and then judgment. So we all have an appointment with death, and we will all sit before what they call the judgment seat, the Bema seat. The Bema is like an elevated podium, and someone would stand before them, and they would receive their judgment. And when you die, the Bible says, when you die, you will see Jesus face to face if you know Jesus, and he will begin to talk with you about the work you did in this life. And he is wise, and he is glorified, and his eyes pierce through your soul and his words penetrate and that's why it says a double-edged sword and there's no need to be intimidated by this Jesus but we have to realize this Jesus will look at every work we did in the body everything we've done and Jesus uses the same litmus test he spoke of on earth You see, that's why the Bible tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. The the Bible talks about a, a tree being known by its fruit. And what Jesus is looking into your soul and he's looking at your work and he's looking at your time at work and your time at home and your time with your friends. He's looking at you in church and outside the church. He's looking at you home and abroad and he's looking at if you are a loving person. The Bible says everything hangs off of two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And what Jesus is looking at is the loving heart of Christ. He's trying to see and look into your soul. The love you have for him and others. And he is rewinding the tape on life and evaluating our work. Later here, it says that Jesus walks amongst the lampstands. The lampstands are imagery of the church. And so when it says that Jesus walks amongst the church, you think it's just talking about Sunday? Like Jesus is like, okay, y'all getting ready? Okay, spirit break out. Okay, I'm going to come now because church starts at 415. Or is it true where two or three are gathered, I'm in the midst? That Jesus is looking at not just our conversation, but our meditation. He's looking at what we look at. Now, don't be intimidated. Don't be intimidated by this Jesus. Rather, know that Jesus takes our work on earth that serious that it's not some vacation spot when we get to heaven where he's like, you're here. So dope. I'm glad you made it. That's not what happens. He says, stop. Let's look back for a second. And just like the parable of the talents, I want to look back at the life you lived. For the believer here this, this afternoon, I want you to hear one thing they said of in the Gospels. Well done. Is that something you long to hear? As he looks at the way that you Pray for people and love people. Do you long to hear, well done? 
I know no one saw the way that you were caring for people behind the scenes. I know the depth of forgiveness that you've been pouring out on people. I know. I was there. And his eyes peer into our very soul. And this is Jesus, the good judge. Not unrighteous, but a good judge. Until he will look back at our work and he will know all that we've ever done. But I must give us clarity about this Jesus as well. Because he will judge the non-believer and the believer. And in his judgment of the non-believer, you, if you don't know Christ today, your judgment will not be based solely on, your judgment will primarily be based on whether or not you trusted Christ for your righteousness. You don't want to meet Jesus with your works in your hand. Because your works, the Bible says in Isaiah, are like filthy rags. And what the Bible continues to tell us is that the judgment of Jesus Christ goes with a consequence. For the believer in 1 Corinthians, it'll say that we get rewarded with either gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. And we can get into that another time. But for the non-believer, the consequence of being judged without Christ's righteousness covering you. Some would say Gehenna. Some would say Sheol. Sometimes it's called Hades. But we most understand it as hell. And this is the separation from God himself. And there is, in verse 18, Jesus. He says, that he's the living one, he was dead. But he said, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. And whenever they use this imagery of holding keys, it is speaking to being the authority figure in control of a destination. And he is saying, I hold the keys. Allow me to reintroduce myself. Yes, people associate me with heaven, but please understand this. If your works are what you're trusting in, know that the Bible gives a very clear picture of being separated from God. There are no simple terms about being separated from God for eternity. It says that there is eternal fire. It says that there's unquenchable fire. It says it's a place of torment. It says it's the weeping and gnashing of teeth. It says everlasting destruction. It gives this harsh picture of being separated from God. And oftentimes people will say, well, this is just hyperbole. This is just imagery. It's all going to work out. I hope so. But if it is not an interpretation, that means it's a revelation. 
That means God's displaying something you could not see with your own eyes. And I believe the pinnacle, the pinnacle of torment is not just the physical aspects of it. Jesus on the cross in Matthew 27, verse 46, he says, my God, my God. And I love the way that the the CSB translates. He says, why have you abandoned me? Now notice Jesus is the son of God connected to his father. And Jesus does not yell out, my God, my God, these nails are too tough. The, the, The thorns that were on my head, they're too rough. The nails in my feet, they're they're too tight. This this is rubbing up against my back. My God, my God, my blood is filling with lungs and all that would be true. But what Jesus cries out is, you've abandoned me. You've forsaken me. And understand, being separated from the very creation and the creator will be the pinnacle of torment. And, it, and for us, we don't want to talk about this. We want to look away. We don't want him to reveal this side of himself. But understand this. If hell never grips your mind, then the cross will never capture your heart. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ was a picture of Jesus, of God himself, pouring out his wrath because he is a holy God. And he is pouring out his wrath on Jesus to take on the torment so that it would replace my torment and it would replace me on the cross. And we want, we tend to want an easy believism where I don't have to grasp the holiness of God and the judgment of Jesus. But it is true. the very work of Jesus Christ was keeping me from the penalty of death. Death being separation from God. Death and hell. Tonight, as we get ready to walk through the book of Revelation, tonight some of you need to peer into this Jesus and allow Jesus the judge to look at the very work you hold up before the Lord, not to impress him and not for salvation, but because you love him. And then there are some of you, there are some of you, you fooled us all. You fooled us all. You're faithful to our church. You read your Bible. But the Bible says that in that day, There will be some who say, Lord, Lord, I was prophesying in your name. And he says, away from me. I never knew you. And my daughters, think about the shock that will be. My daughters... We were watching a movie, and they had seen an actor from another movie that they knew. And they said, Dad, we know him. I said, baby, we don't know him. They said, "We, we, we we saw him. No, I said, honey, 
We've seen him at work, but we've never met him personally. And you can talk about all the movies he's ever been in, but you've never met him personally. And what I'm telling you is that the Bible says there will be some in this room that will be able to describe and sing of Jesus better than anyone else and you don't know him because your life is not submitted to Jesus. And people, people do not know you as a loving person. And people don't know you for that fruit. They know you because you've been knowledgeable about Jesus, because you've been in Sunday school, because you know things about Jesus, but you, do, you, don't, you don't pray with brokenness, you don't seek his face, you don't run after him, and you don't know him. And the Bible says make your calling and election sure. And I remember when I met Pastor Rich, and he said, you know, man, I feel horrible. I, this is my third time being baptized. You know, and, I, and I, I don't want to get baptized again. I said, just stay faithful to Jesus. But know this, for the person that gets baptized again and again, I think that that is theology that we need to move away from. I don't think you need to get baptized again. But there is something quietly wise there. I just want to be sure. I'm not, I'm not saying get baptized five and six. I'm not, I just want to be sure. And are you sure tonight? Are you sure? Are you sure? Are you confident? Because if this is a revelation, not a mere interpretation, then this should change your life. Now in the back, we're going to have people praying. And oh, I just pray, I just want to be sure. I pray you go back there and say, I just want to be sure. I want to meet Jesus, and I want to hear, well done, James. Oh, well done. Because you loved me, and we'll look back at your work. How shocking it will be for the soul. Running to Jesus with open arms. Jesus, you don't have to front no more. You didn't really know me. Holy Spirit, tonight, we ask that you would change us to make us look more like you. We ask that the word of God would change us. We ask that the spirit of the living God would move us into action. And we ask that we would submit our lives to you. Now, God, be with us. In Jesus' name. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. We'd love to hear how God used this sermon to speak to you. Please take a minute to email us your story. Our email address is info at bridgechurchnyc.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using at bridgechurchnyc or visit our website, bridgechurchnyc.com. Thanks again for listening to this week's message.